Hi there. You are listening to You Need to Stop Doing That, a podcast from OPX and MatchPace. I'm your host, Elizabeth Knox. We are all facing a million decisions a day, big ones and little ones. It can be overwhelming, and our quick solution is often to add more to our lives. More technology hacks, more responsibilities, more relationships. In reality, if we want to be more successful and to have a greater impact and to maintain the quality relationships we have, we need to make choices to prune away some things from our lives. Only then can our priorities have the place that they deserve. In this podcast, we explore how to stop doing something in a world where we expect ourselves and others to keep saying yes to the next thing. All right, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have Nate Dvorak, who is a researcher at Gallup. He and I talk about how to say no well and how some organizations and companies like REI or CVS or Southwest Airlines have learned how to say no things that do not align with their mission. So if you are involved in an organization that needs to say no to things, I hope that you will learn something from this. Hey, Nate, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited for the listeners to learn from you today. Um, To start us off, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. Uh, First, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to to be on the podcast. A little bit about myself. I am a workplace researcher at Gallup. I've been with Gallup for about uh, 10 years or so in our Omaha, Nebraska office. Um, and what I do every day is is study people and organizations, um, and then hopefully in most cases I use what I learned to to improve both, right? To uh, improve people, especially at work, and then improve organizations too with uh, the knowledge that I gain and that uh, people on my team um, gain, and then uh, share uh, with our clients in the world. Awesome, awesome. So in Nebraska, are you a Cornhuskers fan? I am not. I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan, actually. Ah, okay. All right. Well, uh, hopefully Nebraskans don't hold you against, hold that against you. Yeah. Yeah. I think they might, but that's all right. It doesn't offend me. <laughs> so your work involves studying the behavior of organizations. What is your initial reaction from a professional perspective about how organizations do at stopping things? Yeah. I think it's really interesting. The whole um idea of of sort of stopping things or saying no is is i think very interesting and fascinating to me i think what 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 i hear so much of is every organization wants growth and almost will do anything for growth and that leads to everybody always asking what else can we do what else can we do what else can we sell what other markets can we go to what can we try what can we learn from how do we try this how do we learn from this um but very rarely is the question posed, what should we stop doing or what should we say no to? What can we say no to before we even know to try something, to learn something, to do something? So I think it's it, it's probably for a few reasons, right? One is just kind of organizational momentum, right? There, everybody's trying to move forward, forward, forward. What's new? What's new? What's new? How do we grow, grow, grow? Um, but I think just as in, in my experience, I think um, part of doing that is also doing that efficiently, I should say, um, and in a smart way is also sometimes figuring out what are the things we can say no to or should say no to quickly so that we can sort through to those things that we should eventually say yes to. So why do you think organizations like to say yes, or why do they have a hard time saying no? Yeah, um, that's a, good, a very good question. I think first sometimes it's just momentum, right? People just just 
start something, try something, and there's sort of a sunk cost effect, or people have sort of a, a fear of loss aversion. So once they start something or invest in something or something worked before, um, they want to say, let's keep going and going and going. Um, I think, yes, also, from a people perspective, it's also easier. It's, it's easier to say yes. It feels better when you say yes. It feels better, you know, to say, sure, let's try, or, you know, it feels like a win when you say yeah, yes to something. You can get somebody else to agree that, yeah, this might be a good idea. Um, and, and there's also probably in many cases a sense of urgency too, right? So let's try to find out something and then just go try it and, and keep moving rather than in some cases taking a little bit more time to think through it and say, okay, should we say no or how can we say no? I think there's also a personal, um, I think we would all almost agree that it's harder to say no to things, right, and to people. And when you say no, you sometimes, you don't get the response you want from people. You get, um, saying no can feel personal, right? You can, um, you know, you can get a labels of, oh, that person's always critical, or that person always has a can't-do attitude, right? Or that person's not a good partner. So it's hard for us both as people and organizations to sometimes be able to say, uh, no, um, we shouldn't do that, and here's why, rather than saying, ah, yes, fine, let's give it a shot, even if in the in the back of our mind somebody somewhere knows we shouldn't do that for whatever reason. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. It's both organizational and personal, and since those decisions are intertwined, um, you know, if you're saying no to something, it feels like you're saying no to a person, even if it's an organizational decision. Um, and then if you're on the receiving end of the no, it feels like kind of a personal affront or something. Um, so I'm sure that that personal yeah. organizational dynamic really gets in there. So yeah, I, you, I think it really does. Good. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, I think it really does. I think that that interplay of personally wanting to, and there is, there's so much emphasis on organization in organizations every day about being a good partner, being collaborative, working cross-functionally, and what that means is people are always trying to reach out and be better partners and do things together, and saying no is kind of like throwing a wrench in those things sometimes, right? So all those things that are values or hallmarks of good culture or success, um, and everybody wants to do that, be more of that, and then sometimes a no can throw a wrench into that. So it's hard to separate who we want to be, which is collaborative, cross-functional, we're a successful team, with sometimes knowing when to say no and not feel like we're... um you know, not going along with what the culture is supposed to be or we're not being collaborative or a good partner. But I think people and organizations need to do that, right? That that has to happen. Yeah. They know some of those things. Yeah. So have you seen examples of organizations that have said no? Yeah, I've I've seen a few and they this is, these are what kind of piqued my interest in this topic is um I would say organizations that kind of said no to things and were were public about it. So there's a few kind of that I have on this this mental list um, that I've kind of studied a little bit or read quite a bit about and, and been impressed with. So um, one of them is CVS Pharmacy a few years ago deciding to say no to selling cigarettes and tobacco products, right? And they made a public statement about it and said, you know what, we've been selling cigarettes and tobacco products for a long time because they're a convenience store, right? And, and they made, I want to say something that was like $2 billion. They made a lot of money selling those things, but they said, at the end of the day, selling those is not consistent with our mission and purpose, right, which is to make people promote their lives and promote their health. So we're going to say no to doing that. We're going to stop doing that. 
because it's basically, long story short, inconsistent with our mission and purpose. And to me, one that was a powerful decision, it was a smart decision, um, and they did it in a way that really, um, yes, it may have hurt their bottom line, but it also, from a brand and marketing perspective, really communicated and kind of solidified to customers, maybe even people who aren't customers, hey, CVS actually stands for something, and it's something different than maybe some of their competitors who um, do sell cigarettes and tobacco products stand for or believe in. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's hard when you're kind of, for organizations, making that values and revenue decision. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because, again, you like, you if you're a for-profit organization and financial revenue is your main bottom line that you're watching, to say no to something that's going to cut out revenue is a really hard decision. Um, are there other organizations that you've seen do that well? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's kind of in in a similar vein. Um, REI's announcement again a couple of years ago where they said, look, we're, we're in the retail. REI sells, you know, outdoor clothing and products and goods. And if you're in the retail space, the biggest day of the year is Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, right? And REI said, you know what, we're going to be closed on that day because we think that day is a time for not working and a time for being outside, enjoying the outdoors, spending time with friends or family or whoever. And so we're going to make a statement to say that that's a day where we encourage our people to, you know, do our employees to do that. Um, And so we're going to be closed. Our retail stores are going to be closed on that day. Um, to me, that was in just just like the point you were saying. It's it's a cost decision, right? There's a cost that day of being closed, having the retail locations closed on the busiest shopping day of the year. But it making that statement, making that announcement again, solidified and clarified and communicated to their employees, to their customers. Hey, this is what REI stands for. This is who we are. This is what maybe how we're different than other retailers. For example, we're not just selling clothes. We're actually standing for something that's meaningful. Um, and just like with the CVS thing, it got a ton of press, right? So at the end of the day, um, is is REI trying to make money? Yeah, and do they do they make money? The more people read about them in the papers, think about them, think, oh yeah, maybe I should. I'm not going to go uh, to the REI store on Black Friday, but I am going to go buy something online from them because I know that's still open, and I feel a lot better about buying from them because I know who they are, what they stand for, and I kind of personally identify with with that mission. So. That's a good example. Southwest Airlines has another one that I've always found fascinating where they said um, when the entire airline industry, I think, said we're going to start charging for bags, um, Southwest Airlines could have decided to charge for bags and say we're just going to kind of, you know, go with the the flow of the industry. And they said or they made the decision to say we're not going to do that. And, and again, there's a revenue uh, cost to doing that, right? That's kind of in some ways, easy money to just tack on a fee for bags for every flight, or for every passenger on a flight. Um, but they said we're not going to do that because once again, it's inconsistent with our mission. Right? If they're, I think, I won't get the the wording exactly right, but Southwest Airlines' mission is kind of to democratize the skies, right? So people um, they can fly, so they can spend time with their friends, family, loved ones, go on vacation, um, and and that it's affordable to do. And when they start charging for bags, it it makes that you know, the opportunity to connect with those friends, family, loved ones that go on vacation a little bit more expensive, and, and they don't want to do that. So, uh, once again, Southwest Airlines had a big, as I'm sure probably everybody has seen the commercials about bags flying free, because they said, look, this is a critical decision 
there's a potential revenue cost to us, but there's also a way to clarify our mission and purpose and, and make sure our uh, customers and maybe even future customers know who we are and why we exist and why they should choose to fly with us. So let's tell them, reaffirm that bags are going to fly free, and the reason is because we don't want to nickel and dime you. We're trying to have, you know, the lowest cost airline and air travel. So I think all of those are good examples. There's probably more, and I think all of those CVS, REI, Southwest Airlines, all of them probably did a good job of saying, kind of, when everybody else is going to go one way, we're going to go the other way. But we're not going to do it quietly. We're, we're going to take some time and advertise that and, and, you know, make sure that there is publicity about what we're doing and why we're doing that. And then in the end, I think that probably for all of them makes up some of that what could be lost revenue, right, from not selling cigarettes or not being open on a busy day or not charging for bags by reminding all of their customers, hey, here's who we are, here's why we exist, and here's why we want you to shop us in, in the first place, where I want you to shop us more, for example, or spend more time or money with us. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, those are all really good examples. And I, it's, I mean, it's funny, they're all in my mind, but I never would have thought of them as those are decisions of organizations saying no, but that's exactly what they had to do, um, was to say, to say no to going with the flow or no to kind of initial obvious revenue options. Do you know, so do you know what kind of impact it had for them? Both, you know, it sounds like positive press was an impact for a lot of them. Do you know if it happened to have a revenue impact for any of them? Yeah, I think I've, I've heard for Southwest Airlines it did. Um, we could probably go back and look. I bet if we, if you could look back at um, some announcements and things like that, they've probably, um, I think, I would hope it had had some positive impact. And I know that the story I learned or I heard from Southwest Airlines is that it was something like they thought if they started charging for bags, it was going to be something like $300 million in additional revenue over some period, like 12 months or whatever it was, or six months um, from bags fees. Um, and then when they said, we're not going to charge for that, but we got to try to go find that money somewhere, I want to say the number I heard was after that kind of bags fly free campaign, over the same period, it was like they had $1.2 billion in increased sales that they attributed to more people flying them, right? So that could be attributed to a lot of things. One, that could be attributed to um, that big marketing campaign um, and everybody saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, fly Southwest. That's why I fly Southwest. I'm going to look at Southwest prices first before anything else. It could also be to, you know, when everybody else is increasing their flight prices uh, and Southwest says they're not, people just stop flying those you know, Delta or whatever it is because they, they are charging more for bags. So um, that's the one where I've actually heard um, kind of some specific numbers, and I don't I wouldn't be the one to verify those numbers, but I did hear numbers close to that. Um, and, and I'm sure REI the same way, right? It's, it's hard to do a – you can't do sort of a pre- and post-test and say here's what we would have made, uh, but here's what we actually made. But But I think especially about the publicity of those and reminding people, you know, in a busy airline market – in retail, for example, in a very busy time of year when everybody's trying to get the attention of consumers after Thanksgiving, um, you know, when REI made that statement and got all that publicity, they there was all kinds of secondary articles and publicity about it. So they got a lot of free public press for that that I'm sure generated some sales before, during, or after that one day um, mm-hmm. for Black Friday. And I'm sure for CVS too, right? There's We, we kind of did some some studies around that, and especially people who are – um, maybe not really loyal to any one single pharmacy, for example. Um, 
maybe they appreciated the the opportunity for CVS to clarify what they actually stand for, right? So people who don't really love Walgreens, don't really love Target, don't really love Walmart, when they see CVS do something like that, they're much more likely to say, okay, I'm going to give CVS a try. Now I know I don't have one pharmacy that really has my heart or has my loyalty when CVS does something like that. I created an opportunity for them to reach out to some of those customers and say, hey, we are the, a different um, retailer. We stand for some things, and hopefully if you align with those things, uh, you should give you know give our business a shot. So you mentioned the positive press. Like some people might accuse these organizations of making these decisions only for positive press. Um, so two things. I mean, I guess it's hard to know um, what the impact would have been if they didn't have the positive press. Or I guess my question would be, does the positive press diminish the value of their no? Mm-hmm. I don't think so in my mind. I, mean, I, th- I think it's worth when you think about all of the brand campaigns we see every day on the radio or in the newspaper or on TV or on wherever they're online, um, and so many, some are, are about a product or an organization, right, and they give us clear messages about why we should choose some product or some service over another. Some of them, though, to me at least, leave my head scratching and saying, what the heck are they trying to advertise again? Yeah, I've heard, you know, Geico and the Lizard a hundred times, but... I'm still not sure exactly what the lizard does for for my car insurance, right? But so at the same time, when when you have opportunities to clarify in an in an impactful way, hey, here's who our organization is, here's what we stand for, and in some cases, here's what we don't stand for. I think there's massive value in that, right? Because people actually see then something really that they can kind of hang their hat on and say, okay, I I now know who that organization is better because. Um, I know a whole bunch of organizations that sell outdoor equipment, right? Um, it's hard for me to say who who sells outdoor equipment better than any of the other ones until you kind of go in there and you have to spend a lot of time figuring that out. But it is clear to say I know that one organization that sells outdoor equipment really stands for something because they made a decision, they communicated that decision, and people heard about it. So I think it's totally fair to and smart even um, to say we are going to make a decision to say no about something, and then we're really going to publicize that decision because um, that decision to say no helps define who we are and what we say is important and what we stand for. Um, so I, I, I don't think it diminishes that. Um, at, I think that's a, you know at all. Yeah, that's a good point. That your brand is just as much about what you're not about as it is what you are about. Without, yeah. you know, making it too negative, but it's like, look, we're not about kind of the crush and the craze of a consumerist culture. We're about people actually getting outside. So instead, and I know REI has done social media campaigns around um, opt-out for opt-out doors for Black Friday. And so then people can post pictures with the hashtag. I think it's opt-outside or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, they've helped people participate in it. Yeah. Um, And the same with Southwest. Like you said, you know, we're not about getting every last – we're about you getting to see your family or getting to your destination in the most reasonable way possible. And so they don't – like, they don't do first class, right? They don't do – so there are a lot of decisions that they make um, that might get them more revenue but aren't in line with their values. Yeah, and I think it's – it's creating long-term lo- – in many, all the, almost all these cases, they're creating long-term loyalty 
by in the short term passing up easy revenue, right? So they're creating long term loyalty for somebody who says, I'm an REI customer, right? And I'm going to opt outside and share my photos on Instagram or whatever, or I'm a, I'm a Southwest customer because that's who I am. I agree with them. And um, yeah, I may not, you know, there was $20 that I would have paid for a bag on this flight to go to Mexico or wherever or go to Dallas. But instead, over the next 10 flights I take, I'm going to fly Southwest every time because I trust that they're not nickel and diming me. So it's, I think almost all of these cases are examples of building long-term customer loyalty uh, while not taking every single short-term revenue opportunity that they can. Yeah. I mean, this is actually, I'm feeling personal motivation. I'm like, yeah, I really like Southwest. Yeah, I really like REI. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I can see how that pulls people in. So in all of these examples, the companies are making decisions that are in line with their values. Are there other reasons why an organization, a company would say no to something? Um, I've thought of a few. I think, um, you know, when something is clearly bad for customers or your customer relationships, I think organizations should be saying no to those things. And, and unfortunately, we've probably all read in the headlines of examples where organizations didn't do that, where it's probably when you read about it in the newspaper, it's kind of like, well, duh, of course that wasn't good for your customers or your customer relationships or your brand. Why did you do that in the first place? But I think people, again, get caught up. Organizations get caught up. In, in many cases, it is. It's opportunities to grow the business, right? So we're making more money or, or we can get more fees or more products or whatever, more revenue from our customers. So we think, oh, sure, why not? Here's an opportunity for organization to grow and make more money. And then when somebody steps back and says, yeah, but does it really have a benefit for the customer? Um, it doesn't, and I think that can get organizations in, into trouble when they when they don't have that understanding of, yes, we can charge a fee or sell a product, but at the end of the day, is the customer really benefiting? Um, is it great for every customer? If every single customer paid for this and had this uh, service or product, would they all come back to us and say, we're so thankful, we're so glad that we have this? Or would a lot of them come back to us and say, no, I don't want to pay for that, or um, you're charging me way too much for this, or this really isn't benefiting uh, me or my life. Um, all too often, you know, we see examples of those, and they, en they end up coming back and hurting the organization's brand, or in some cases, you know, worse than that with some lawsuits. So I think, generally speaking, um, the the question needs to be asked, and people need to understand how to say no to saying, look, this really, truly doesn't benefit our customers. Mm -hmm. And eventually that's going to come back and hurt your brand. Um, and I think the, the other kind of side to that is if, it's, if it is just totally inconsistent with the mission, for example. So there could be a revenue opportunity where an organization says, we can make money doing this, right? We can, our customers or a new set of customers would pay us money to do something. But stepping back and saying it's totally inconsistent with who we are as an organization, what we do, what we stand for, the business that we're, we're in, for example, um, those are, are two kind of, to me, guide rails to say, here, you know, should we be saying no to these things? Is it bad for our customers? Or not even bad for our customers, doesn't have very clear benefit for our customers, or is just totally inconsistent with who we are and how we've defined ourselves as, as an organization? Those should be reasons to say no. I think there's other ones, too, that are more obvious, you know, like when something just costs the organization too much or it's impossible mm -hmm. 
um, to do, right, then then those are kind of the easy ones where it's easy to say no in a room like that when somebody just says, no, we don't have enough money to do that, right? Or, um, no, we don't have a credible brand to do that. Or, no, that simply is just impossible to ex- execute. Um, then people can usually more easily say no to those. It's the things where they could actually do it, right? We We could actually sell something, offer a new product or whatever it is, um, but the question is almost more about should we do it, and how does the organization then say no to the should should we do it instead of the could we do it? Could we do it? Saying no to those probably easier than the should we do it, um, and then should we say yes or no? That's where it usually gets a little more difficult. So you in kind of bringing that decision home, like it rests with a particular person, um, and I think that you you know, have a lot of exposure to leaders of different organizations. Do you see tools that they use to help them say, like, how to make this decision, whether it's a decision framework or um, do you see ways that leaders figure out what to say yes and what to say no to? Yeah, I've never worked at Johnson & Johnson, but I've heard that they have, I've heard from people who have worked there that they have sort of, you know, decision guides, right? They have the Johnson & Johnson credo that kind of guides their decisions and has for years, to ensure that what they're um, doing is consistent with with their mission and their purpose, and they've actually have kind of decision guides that individuals or teams can use to say, okay, how it's almost like a decision tree, uh, to say, okay, how how are we making decisions? How are we evaluating options? And how are we ensuring at the end of the day that one individual leader's decisions or one employee's decisions or even a team decision really is consistent and sort of validated through their credo and the framework they've developed? I think some of those kind of tools like that um, are are great. I've heard of other examples, too, where organizations will do, I want to say it's called, you know, something like a, a post or a pre-mortem, I think it is, right? So before they make a decision, you know, when you have a team together and everybody kind of weighs in on their two cents and says, here's why we should do this, here's why it would make sense. Um, and then you can stop before the decision and then have everybody individually say, okay, is this a really good decision or not, in your personal opinion? And if this this decision does go bad, tell me why it's going to go bad or where it's going to go bad. Okay. And then from what I've, you know, reading about situations like that, what you hear is that individually people are much more likely to talk about the reasons why it could go bad or it could be a bad decision um, rather than in a group. Right In a group, there's the, the kind of the pressures we talked about, right, to say yes, to be collaborative, to all be on the same page, to not contradict somebody's idea or say no to somebody's idea. So in a group setting, people are more likely to say, yes, let's give it a shot. Yes, let's try it. In an individual setting, they're more likely to say, if you push them to say, if this really is going to go bad, if this is a wrong decision, how would we know it's a wrong decision? People are just usually more comfortable saying that. And so you can do that kind of pre-mortem exercise with a big decision to see if there could be risks uh, to the brand of an organization or to its customers or to, you know, if there is a decision that's inconsistent with its mission and purpose, people may be more apt to kind of talk about that and share their opinion individually rather than in a group where where there are some of those pressures to be collaborative, be on board, uh, be a good partner, be a good teammate, um, and kind of, you know, all think together instead of sometimes taking a step back individually and seeing, okay, is there something one person sees that nobody else is seeing, but they're, they're for whatever reason, whatever social pressures are there, um, maybe not willing to, to be the one who calls that out in a group. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. I've never heard of a pre-mortem before. Um, I've heard of post-mortems, absolutely, but a pre-mortem and the idea of getting out ahead 
of the decision and saying like, okay, we made this decision, you know, let's suspend reality, pretend that we made this decision. And then what are the things that could have gone wrong as a function of making this decision? So I think that's an interesting, um, an interesting way to look at it and to kind of, to take a step back from just going with the flow um, of, like you said, all the positive energy towards the yes, the yes, the yes. Um, just pause and be like, okay, what happens if we actually say yes to this? What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, Reminds me, so, too, you asked about leaders. I, I've I've um, heard Warren Buffett talk about this and read about him talking about it, too, that he he gets a whole bunch of ideas, right, as you can imagine. He, he has no shortage of investment ideas that people come to him with. And he said he has three piles. One's the yes pile, one's the no pile, and one's the too complicated pile. And I think that's really that, that's a good ratio of of being able to say there's there's easily two ways to say no. One is just an outright no, and maybe there there's things like you know this is inconsistent with our customer relationship, how we want our customers to see us, or it's inconsistent with our mission. Those are easy to say no to. There's other things too where you just say this is too complicated. It may be a, a decent idea, but my, there has to be a lot of things that go right for this to work. Um, so having that sort of some sort of framework like that, where it's it's not just yes or no, but yes, no, and then also too complicated, which is another way of saying no. Um, and having that predefined framework could be you know, something that obviously Warren, very smart investor, and he he's got a very clear framework for which he starts kind of evaluating some of those ideas that he can right away just say no, nope, it's too complicated. Um, and that's one way to say no. Mm-hmm. That is a good way to say no. And then I noticed you called him Warren. Is everyone in Omaha on a first-name basis with him? Ha, I would say not personally. <laughs> I don't think everyone I, – I would say when you're talking about him, people just say uh, Warren. But uh, he keeps a pretty low profile. So um, <laughs> I've seen him at the, the annual meeting a few times, but I've never actually seen him or met him in, in person. But I think around Omaha, people call him uh, – Warren, just because he's kind of a local guy here in Omaha. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And that I know that he's done a lot to make his leadership, what he does as a leader, accessible to other people. So this is a new thing that I'm learning about him today, about how he makes decisions. But that's um, I've seen a lot of kind of his leadership on paper, um, him helping people figure out how he's made decisions and um, built such a empire and a legacy and everything. Yeah, he talks about everybody else talks about him as an investor, but I think the some of the interviews I've seen when people ask him like, you know, what he wants his legacy to be, it's all about him being a teacher. And I think he's when you look at him as a teach when you look at him as an investor, which is how most people look at him, he's he's incredible. But when you also take a different lens and look at him as a teacher as a teacher, it's just as impressive as a teacher of investment philosophies, business strategy, all those things. We all have a lot, I think, to learn to learn from him in that way. Hmm, that's awesome. And that's funny because I didn't know that that was what he wanted his legacy to be, but I have noticed how he makes so much of what the tools that he uses are everything accessible. So I guess he's doing a good job at building his legacy, even if I didn't quite understand it um, that explicitly. Um, So a lot of these decisions are personal, like Warren Buffett making a personal decision or back to our conversation at the beginning about kind of the interplay of interpersonal and organizational dynamics. So what about receiving no or hearing no? Like how can people, if you're the one, you know, you're in an organization and you're trying to be collaborative and you're trying to put forth an idea and you put forth an idea, what happens? How can you handle no well if 
Yeah. You get a no. That might be the most important question that you've asked, right? Because we all have these that our own personal investment in our ideas, our success, our organization's success, and when somebody does get in the way of that, it feels like you know people take it personally, right? They they have pride in their ideas, their opportunities. I, I think this is probably easy to say, harder to do and feel, but I've heard it said many times, I've said it myself, I've had people say it to me, is that when you are, you know, it's easier to say no to ideas rather than people. So it's important to always, um, when you're communicating a no to a partner, a teammate, as much as you can, say no to the idea and not the person, right? Yeah. So just say, you know, the, the while you, to, to maybe move past the idea, but also maintain the relationship during that so that you don't lose both and so that you don't, you know, um, kind of tie in the no to you shutting down the person and saying no to that person or that they're, you know, there's nothing personal that people automatically feel um, when they when they hear no as people take that personally. It's totally natural human reaction. Um, mm -hmm. But both the sender of the message and the receiver of the message, if you can kind of create an environment where if not no to the person, it's um, no to the idea. And there's some invest like Bridgewater, I think, talks about an idea meritocracy, right? And their culture is set up to to identify and find and surface the best ideas. And so they set up a whole bunch of things around that to make that happen. And it's very clear from everybody who, you know, the entire individuals and teams in the organization that what we are here to do is find the best ideas. So they create a culture that does that and doesn't create, you know, personal battles or personal fiefdoms or create people that are just totally attached their identity and their brand and their individualization success to an idea. Um, they're trying to get as many ideas as possible and find the best ones. That's awesome. You, I mean, I don't know why it's like clicking in my head. I'm like, you've just worked with so many fascinating companies and you have just such great examples of how companies really are saying no well. Um, they're, they're, stopping doing things that don't serve them. Um, I'm sure there are lots of examples where companies aren't, but you've highlighted some really um, great examples um, of companies that are. Um, so I want to, as we wrap up, I want to bring it home personally. So something I'm asking every podcast guest is, what is something that you personally need to stop doing, and how are you working on that? Yeah, uh, good, very good question. Um, I would say... You know, as I was kind of thinking about and reflecting on this, um, again, it's a it's very good question because it's a tough question, but also it's valuable for me to think about it. I think studying my own failures or non-successes is a very natural thing for anybody to do, but it's probably, I've noticed lately that, you know, that the natural thing is to study, okay, this went wrong, why did it go wrong, how can I fix it, what can I do differently, and sort of replaying those scenarios over in my head is probably valuable, but I also think it's probably more valuable to think about successes and say, okay, from a success standpoint, rather than thinking about, you know, every day this thing that went wrong or that thing that went wrong, think about what are the things every day that went right and, and why did it go right and not worrying as much about the things that went wrong. And I want to tweak and fix and more about the things that worked out really. What 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 led to this success? Spend more time thinking about uh, those successes and trying to learn from and recreate those successes to me is probably something that I could stop doing as much of the studying the not successes and figuring out how to avoid those and do spend more time 
thinking about the successes and what led to those and how to repeat those. So for me, that was a really good, posing that question was a really good reflection point to me to say, yeah, I should really, it's, it's probably one, it's it's more enjoyable, right? To study those positives, mm-hmm. it makes you smile. You think, wow, that was great. Instead of the failures where you take it personally or you put blame on somebody else. Um, because that's, I think, kind of naturally what happens when you're studying a failure or not success. But flipping that coin and saying, Okay, what did go wrong here? Who can I who can I thank for helping this go right? Right, this is success. Who else was involved in the success? What did I do right? How can I strengthen those relationships? Do more of that. Um, bring out the things that that I contributed to that success um, and succeed in the future more that way. So um, that was kind of a personal yeah. reflection, I guess, for me is to say, yeah, let's spend more time on those. Um, on the positive things um, and, and trying to recreate those instead of um, the not positive things and trying to minimize those. So that, that's yeah, my definitely. my one thing I'm going to stop doing or, or try to minimize <laughs> is the, looking at looking at the failures or the not successes from that lens. Awesome! I really like that. It reminds me of like people have talked about how gratitude, like the practice of gratitude, has really influenced them. That like once you start finding things to be thankful for you see a lot more to be thankful for. Um, and I think that's true that we all kind of look at our days and look at all the things that went wrong um, or a project at work or something, because we want to, we like the idea of continual improvement. Um, but I like that idea of focusing on the things that went well and how can I continue to build into those? Um, so you're a wise man. Um, you've got a lot of experience and thanks for your personal reflection. That was really helpful for me too. Sure. Thanks for asking me the question. The the, the credit goes to you. You asked the question, and it forced me to step back and say, "Hmm, what?" Yeah. So thank you very much for asking the for posing the question. It was a good one. All right. Well, a little bit of podcast therapy for all of us. Um, yeah. There we go. Um, <laughs> Nate, thank you so much for um, being on the podcast, and I'm grateful for you sharing your brain with us. Sure. Like well, like I said, I'm I'm honored to do it. Um, glad to be a guest, and uh, hopefully people enjoy the podcast. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Nate. Take care. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Nate as much as I did. I am um, going to look up the Johnson & Johnson credo, and we'll try to include a link in the show notes. I think we can all learn from other companies that are good at saying no. If there's something that you need to stop doing and aren't sure how to do that, drop me a line on the website, and we will do a podcast episode on it. 